everybody. Ruby Ryder here. Welcome to Making Paradise podcast number 285. And this is the first podcast that I'm recording during the month of Movember. And I've talked a lot about Movember in the past couple of podcasts I've done. So I'm pretty sure you're all fairly familiar with that. So what am I doing this month? I am trying to raise $1,000. So far, I've gotten $300. I've been posting a lot on Instagram and Twitter. And I also have been walking for my, you know, when you do Movember, you either grow a mustache, which I joke that I'm old enough to where I almost could, (laughs) but I'm not going to do that because that would not be pretty. (laughs) I usually do some kind of physical challenge, which I'm doing again this year. I'm trying to complete 110 miles by the end of the month. And I've connected my Fitbit people. So there's, there's no cheating. There's no budging. There's pure transparency here. So far, I'm at 9.8 miles. The good news is, is that tomorrow morning, myself and my daughter are going to be leaving to go on a cruise. So the good news regarding that and how it relates to my Movember physical challenge and my 110 miles is that They have COVID mask requirements, of course, and there's one particular sentence that really made me happy. And I don't know if it's it's something that you would agree with or not, but it made me happy because during this whole pandemic, the whole mask thing, I have worn them whenever I've been asked to, but it's not been easy on the elliptical doing hardcore cardio. And I miss that. I miss it a lot because that was one of my favorite things on the ellipticals to do hardcore cardio so that I'm just literally sweating everywhere. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed how it made me feel and the fitness and the cardio and all of that. I just, that's my thing when I go to the gym. I enjoy lifting weights as well and doing other things and flexibility things. But that elliptical, yeah, me and that elliptical, we got a thing going on. So here's the sentence that made me very happy. That we would be expected to wear masks in all common areas, including the gym, unless on the cardio machines. (laughs) Now, okay, I'm celebrating because I don't have to wear a mask while I'm on the cardio machine. (laughs) I know it's kind of weird because it's there, you know, you could go purist and you can say, hey, mask, 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 keep everybody safe. But at this point in time, we're sort of in between all that. And they're requiring proof of vaccination to get on the ship. Not only that, they're requiring proof that you do not have covid with a test done two days, within two days of boarding the ship, which uh, my daughter and I just did last night. It was this really interesting telemed thing, which by the way, if anybody's in a situation where they need to show quickly that they do not have COVID, they ship these tests to you and they're cheaper than doing the rapid test. Because yeah, you can get a rapid test, but it's usually about 100 bucks or 150. They're expensive. And if your insurance doesn't pay for it, then you're stuck paying for it yourself. Well, this telemed thing was $70 for a two-pack. And it took us all of 15 minutes. You know, it was really, really easy. It was well done. And you, they have a camera on you and they watch you do it. And then they certify it and they send you an email. So it was easy as that. So I will put the link for that in the links on my show notes because some of you might find that handy. So in the lead up of doing this cruise with my daughter, I've gotten really excited about 
getting in that gym every morning and working out and jumping on that elliptical machine. The reason we're going on the cruise is not to see new places, enjoy new cultures, anything like that. It's your basic out of Long Beach cruise to Ensenada. It's nothing really special. In fact, it doesn't even stop in Catalina for any of you who are familiar with that cruise and that area. But we are going to use it as a writer's retreat. That's what's happening. She is doing NaNoWriMo. And for those of you unfamiliar with that, that is an online community that coalesces during the month of November. And NaNoWriMo is the first two letters of the words National Novel Writing Month. The challenge is to write 50,000 words in one month. And she's done it every single year for, I think, eight or nine years now. A long time. So she'll be doing that. I'll be working on my book. And we will have five days and four nights where we are completely and absolutely taken care of food-wise, because you know how that goes on a cruise, but also we'll have that gym to work out in every morning. So we're really excited about it. And that happens. We leave tomorrow morning for that. So after all of that explanation with the Movember thing, I do encourage you to give if you can. Any amount is appreciated because I would love to get to that $1,000 mark once again. Last year, I kind of let the ball drop and I just didn't really do too much on it. But this year, I'm determined to get back to my former glory of being a, uh, what do they call that? They give me some kind of title because I raised $1,000 and I actually got to attend a few webinars where they talk about the different work that Movember has done. And I think anybody that's raised a thousand or more gets to do that, which was really cool. I learned a lot. They are doing such good work. And I know I say this all the time, but I can't say it enough. They're doing such good work. So I've been doing some exploration regarding different things in the category of masculinity, toxic masculinity, patriarchal stuff. And I have found the book Bell Hooks uh, by Bell Hooks, The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love. And I am really getting a lot out of that. I put some quotes from that book up on Instagram and Twitter. And it's remarkable that this book was written so long ago. Let's see how long ago it was written. Let me open the book right here. She wrote this in 2004. Good Lord. She was so ahead of her time. She is ahead of her time. She is still around doing amazing, amazing things. So I highly encourage you to read this book because it makes clear so many things that have been popping around in my head for the longest time. And you know, the only reason that these things are popping around in my head and that I am so interested in this whole aspect of men opening up and being vulnerable and being able to feel their emotions is because of the pegging stuff, you guys. (laughs) Because pegging is so inherently connected to vulnerability, to opening up, to feeling. It is really connected to that. I would go so far as to say it's inextricably connected to that. So I kind of came about looking at all of this in a roundabout way in sort of a different path than most people, I think. But when I started really trying to understand it, and I started looking at how boys are raised different than girls and patriarchal and all that kind of stuff, which is so right up in the news right now. It's big stuff. I think partly it's big stuff because 
the newer generation wants nothing to do with this whole gender, binary, patriarchal bullshit. And I celebrate them 1000%. But the transition is difficult. And when I started really looking at all of this, that template I can see is so overlaid with so much of my life that it really blows me away. And I do hope better for the future. Mainly, I hope better for the future because not only are we all going to be a whole lot more happy, but that whole suicide prevention thing, you know, 3.5 times as many men commit suicide than women in this country. And in some countries, it's as high as four, four times. And I really don't want to hear that whole thing about, yeah, that's because we're better at killing ourselves because we do more violent attempts, right? That's a sad response. It's always sad. I can't stand that response. The whole point is suicide should never, ever be as high as it is. And we're doing something not right. And when we start looking at men's mental health, we can see some stuff that's not right. And we can see some room for improvement. One of the things I want to talk about as well, before I jump into reading some stuff for you from the Movember website, is there's a new podcast some of you might be interested in by Mark Green. And uh, what's the other guy's name? Matthias, I believe is his last name. So the two of them are doing a podcast called Remaking Manhood Podcast. So if you are looking for something hopeful and helpful amidst all of this talk of toxic masculinity and patriarchy and suicide prevention, I can think of no one better to lead you down that path than this man. He has written so much about manhood, which is, that's his website, Remaking Manhood. And I'm so pleased that he started this podcast because that's an easily digestible thing for so many people. It's available to everyone. It's on all the different platforms. I highly suggest that you give that a listen. That's going to be one of the things I listen to in my break times when I'm on the ship. Absolutely. So check that out, please. I'll put that in the links as well. And now one of the things I'm going to do is there is an area of the Movember website where it's like the Mo Bros, as they call themselves, because by the way, I'm a Mo Sista, uh, tell their stories. And it is quite poignant in some cases. And I wanted to read some of these because I think that perhaps you'll find something in here that you can relate to with the different stories from different types of people. And by the way, hey, changing the world one asset at a time. Let's let's do that before I start reading. <laughs> I don't think I said that. <laughs> okay, so here we are. Oh, and by the way, each November, I raise money for this organization, right? How did Movember Foundation begin? Well, in 2003, two guys from Melbourne, Australia, Travis Garone and Luke Slattery, they were having a beer at the Gypsy Bar in Fitzroy, when their conversation turned to recurring fashion trends and they talked about the mustache and it was it had been a fixture in the past but it was like nowhere to be seen in that time period and they kind of joked about bringing it back so they decided to talk all of their friends into growing a mustache and they also got inspired by their friend's mother who was raising for uh, fundraising for breast cancer so they decided to make the campaign about men's health and prostate cancer and right then, they designed the rules of the Movember, uh, which are still in place today. And they agreed to charge $10 to grow a Mo. <laughs> so Travis designed the first Movember logo. And they sent around an email entitled, Are You Man Enough to Be My Man? <laughs> so they found 30 guys willing to take up the challenge. 
And that was in 2003. So in 2004, there was so much enthusiasm that a decision was made to formalize the concept. And that is how the Movember Foundation was born. And these guys researched men's health issues and agreed to formally support prostate cancer. So they also checked out prostate cancer groups and they approached the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, because that's where they were, remember, and the PCFA agreed to accept the funds from the 2004 campaign, but they weren't an official men's health partner at that time. And that first Movember check to the PCFA was the largest single donation they ever received. Oh my gosh. So since those first years, Movember has continued to grow at an extraordinary pace. They're now official campaigns in 21 countries, and they've raised more than 730 million Australian dollars to fund over a thousand men's health programs. Their focus has broadened to four key men's health issues, prostate cancer, testicular cancer, poor mental health, and physical inactivity. So the whole point of growing the mustache is to have it be a conversation starter so that you can tell people about the Movember Foundation and raise some money. So, okay. Let me read you some of the stories from the website here. And my apologies if this turns out being a little scattered and you're not sure who said what, but just listen to it with a grain of salt because I don't always introduce who's talking and I just want to share some stories here. So just listen in. I think some of the advice that I give to my friends and other men is really just open up and be truthful. I think one of the main things, or one of the hard things, is to be truthful to others. You always want to hide some of yourself, to keep that portion to yourself. But even if you do do that, because I think it's a natural thing to do, I think it's really important to be truthful to yourself. So if you have questions, if you do need help, if you do want to talk about something, I think it's super important to be truthful with yourself about that. I've been taking care of my mental health by trying to be present in every moment and finding places, people, things, moments, experiences that remind me that things are not always this chaotic and that we do live in a world full of beauty and love and other people. Movember is an organization that has shed light on topics that have been dubbed as taboo for far too long. Mental health is a serious issue that quite often is ignored by society. I believe nothing in your life can work properly if you're going through depression or major anxiety. Every November, I am reminded to book my health checkup, and I always urge the people I love to do the same. It should be everyone's priority. I would suggest to live happier, healthy, longer lives that other men cultivate relationships, habits, and experiences that fulfill the you of the moment. Those things that really honor what it is you need in every particular moment. I participated in the Mustache Classic in 2019, but a couple of years before that, a really close and influential friend of mine killed himself. I think through that journey and all throughout my life, my dad's advice have, has always been very important. You're always making note of taking care of your body and taking care of your mental health. And I think now more than ever, I understand the importance of that. That's something that I'm always working towards, which is a part of the reason that I take on the physical challenges and try to really help keep my mental health as best I can. Men's health in general, and Movember in particular, are meaningful because it's often difficult as a man to be in touch with the vulnerability 
that makes growth possible and mental health manageable, to bring a message of awareness and intentionality to being in the moment and in touch with one's true self, I think is an incredibly helpful way to look at the world. It was the day England played Croatia in the World Cup. I went to the pub with him and his friends. My brother was in the best form I had seen him in a long time. Some things hadn't worked out for him recently, so I was glad to see him in a good mood, laughing, telling jokes, having some beer with his friends. At halftime, I left to go home. Later that evening, I got the call about the most devastating news in my life. Maybe it was a spontaneous decision, a moment of utter despair. I often wonder... What if he could have opened up and talked to us instead? Where would he be today? I'm sure everything would be okay by now. He would probably have a wife and children. We will never know. This is the reason why Movember is so important to me. I felt helpless at the time, so Movember was my way of doing something for him. Before losing him, I never knew that there could be such a drive for individuals to get involved. I decided to put up a post every day during Movember. I set my target of a thousand pounds, but after six hours, it was exceeded. By the end, I raised over 16.5 thousand pounds. This money will now go to echo a simple message. Things will get better and you are never alone. That's Paul from Ireland. It started when I was in university. I had never paid much attention to my mental health, constantly running away from any anxiety or sadness I felt. This came to a head at the end of my first year of university. My mental health had massively declined, and I went to go see the on-site counselor, who confirmed that I had alcohol abuse issues. This was a safe place for me to be able to accept it and talk about it openly, though. Being able to discuss this led me to begin questioning how I looked at other things. I found myself getting into journaling and meditation, two practices I previously would have scoffed at. It took two years for me to feel comfortable being me again which left me wanting to help others in a similar way. My aim is that in sharing my own story, we begin to observe and reflect more on how we think. Because at the end of the day, the only person you're going to go to sleep with and wake up with for the rest of your life is you. So it is best to be in good company. This is Kiernan from Ireland as well. They say you should write what you know, and well, unfortunately, I know suicide. The S-word that we believe manifests instant death just by saying it. It's not something people want to talk about. I honestly don't want to talk about suicide all the time, but unfortunately, I have to. I made a promise a long time ago, and I've never gone back on it. It should be noted that I am not a doctor or psychiatrist or therapist of any kind. I am not trained in crisis counseling, nor am I a clergy person. However... I am a suicide attempt survivor. Some refer to me as one of the lucky ones, when in all reality, most times it just feels like being in limbo. I feel like a wandering nomad. I am no stranger to mental illness or suicide. When I was a kid, my dad's best friend died by suicide. I ended up overhearing a conversation between my parents and their friends and learned that day what suicide was. Years later in high school, I was being relentlessly bullied on a daily basis with homophobic slurs and death threats. At a high school across town, another boy was being equally bullied for the same reason by the same bullies. At 14 years old, he ended his life. At 24, 
I received a devastating health diagnosis. My doctor said, you need to be strong for your friends and family. It was three years later, after family fights and health obstacles, that I could no longer be strong. I was 27, and I decided to end my life. The doctors told my dad I would not survive the night. When I woke hours later, the nurse told me I was very, very lucky. I once heard advice on dealing with grief that really resonated with me. When in mourning, be louder than the grief. I started to talk about my experiences publicly, and in time, I started to feel better. I told my story, and people started responding with, Your honesty saved my life. I realized perhaps I could make a difference. I became louder than my grief. Years later, on New Year's Eve of 2018, I lost a longtime friend to an overdose. Six months later, halfway into 2019, I had another loss. It was a friend, mentor, family, big brother. His name was Den. He died by suicide. I was with him just days before. I can still hear him saying, I'll see you on Saturday. For more than a year, my mind went back to that moment at least a hundred times a day, which led to anxiety attacks and me pulling the hairs in my right arm out as a coping mechanism. I cried inconsolably to myself every day, almost all day. I kept rewinding the tape, wondering if I missed something. If I could just go back, I could fix it. Even at his funeral, looking at the urn, standing in the pouring rain, my mind was still bargaining. If I survived suicide, he could too. In a desperate attempt to fix the situation, I got louder than my grief. I started with raising money and walking for Movember, which led me to speaking with the Good Men Project. From there, I went to talk with high school seniors about suicide prevention, and then was invited to speak at a town hall meeting to combat the rising suicide rate in a city right outside of Cleveland. I was receiving emails and messages on social media thanking me for being honest about my experiences, and some asking advice almost daily. I had finally found the cure for my grief. Then COVID came. It was the third week of quarantine when my grief got louder than me. It was in the moment I knew I couldn't risk handling it on my own, so I reached to the suicide prevention hotline. As an attempt survivor, grieving a suicide can get very confusing. I know all too well the moments leading up to that moment, so my heart breaks with empathy for those lost, but I still feel the anger, too. I'm so mad that my friend couldn't say, I need help, but I understand because I was there once too. I was in that void, feeling the world would be better without me in it. This is a lie, I know, but grief rarely makes sense in the void. In the last nine months, I've learned a lot about my grief, and with the help of therapy and a support network, I found some balance. Truth is, for me, I don't believe this grief will ever go away, and I'm okay with that. I also don't believe I have to be louder than it to be heard or make a difference. If there is one thing I want for us, for men's mental health, it's that we start speaking our truths, allowing ourselves to feel feelings and somehow find a healthy way to be comfortable with it and ask for help when we need it, especially now during this pandemic. I've been to the end of that road and I now stand at the end of someone else's. There are so many people trying desperately to end suicide and change the face of men's mental health, and I believe it can be done. I now realize I am one of the lucky ones and that nothing I do will bring my friends back, but I can fight and speak for those out there struggling right now because no one should feel like they don't matter. I don't want anyone to have to go through any of these griefs. All I can leave you with is this singular truth. 
I don't know you, but I know the world is so much better with you in it. I hope that you see that, too, one day soon. In December 2020, now-retired professional alpine skier Hig Roberts came out publicly as gay, making him the first man within his profession to do so. Having grown up within the competitive confines of professional sport, Hig experienced firsthand the struggles of defining masculinity within athletic spaces. Hig speaks with us on why he chose to come out when he did, how being a professional athlete played a role in his journey, and the struggles that have made him into a more confident, happier version of himself. As one of the first pro men's alpine skiers to publicly come out, what was your experience sharing that you are part of the LGBTQ plus community? How did that experience impact your mental health? The story I shared last December and the journey that I am on now are experiences I never expected I would have, not because I was never going to embrace who I was, but because I felt I might never have the confidence to speak about it publicly in a way that could help advance the LGBTQ plus community, specifically in the sports arena. Following my retirement from professional skiing and consequent stint in investment banking, my mental health was in a dilapidated state at best. Amidst confronting my sexuality, I had been broken down entirely, surviving in the worlds that I found myself in, whether that be the hypermasculine space of sports or the space of finance, required a tremendous amount of performative behavior that I practiced on a quotidian basis. So while I was ready to share my story, there was a very surreal feeling embedded within it. When speaking to reporters, friends, or family, I was simultaneously having to eradicate years of mental conditioning that had compelled me to resist the very same expressions for so many years. But I immediately knew it was the right thing to do. I finally felt heroic, and with each breath, I could feel so much self-punishment, denial, and shame dissipate. By the time my story was made public, my life felt gentle again. I am so honored for those who gave me the opportunity to share my narrative that I for so many years believed to be unworthy. What was your experience as a gay man competing in competitive skiing? How did coming out impact your experience? I do know that the way my journey has unfolded was the way it was supposed to happen. It allowed me to learn what I needed to in order to enter the next chapter of my life as best as I possibly could. I say this because I have held some shame in coming out following my athletic career retirement, and I think that sufficiently sums up my experience of being a gay man in competitive skiing. Ultimately, while I was a professional athlete, I truly believed it would be impossible to reveal my sexuality and continue in my career partially because of a lack of representation in the space and partially because of the daily atmosphere I found myself in World Cup alpine skiing. I had a strong intuition that my career would terminate if I came out. Understanding and even speaking about this now is the exact reason I am passionate about advocating in this space. I generally do know that I am a strong, resilient, independent, and confident person. So the idea that I could not be who I was while pursuing my greatest dreams is so problematic, and it cost me a lot. My hope is that my story will help at least one athlete or human being never have to sacrifice their happiness, mental health, or dreams simply because of who they are. 
You've outlined in previous interviews the perceptions and expectations of conforming to masculinity in skiing. How do you think typical views of masculinity impacted your experience? How did you deal with that, and how did that affect you? In my opinion, the system, or rather, more fitting, machine of masculinity drives the ship in most paradigms of life. I'm at a point of trying to truly understand how someone like me, a boy raised by an accepting family, a boy determined more than usual, a boy who experienced success in many spaces, including sports and academics, and a boy who stood up for what he believed in, was forced to lose all of that because of the environment he found himself in, professional sports. A paramount part of increasing LGBTQ plus acceptance in sports and traditionally masculine spaces, which in my opinion encompasses almost all spaces of society, is breaking down, reworking, and redefining the rules of masculinity. It is hard to emphasize just how much masculinity shapes our world, and most specifically how it shapes our view of sexuality. From the day I was born, I believe I was conditioned to abide by a pervasive masculine code that was drilled into me both consciously as well as subconsciously. If it is possible to achieve the pinnacle of masculinity, or hero status as I would call it, I would say I got pretty close by becoming a physically strong, warrior-style, tough ski racer. And I fed into the hungry machine of masculinity because I thought it would solve all the deficiencies that my uniqueness left me feeling inside. Unfortunately, I let this elusive system of masculinity rob me of a lot of happiness and potential. Moving forwards, I think we need to create an entirely new roadmap of what it means to be a man. It will be so important for all of us to take a more critical look at the system of masculinity if we want to increase acceptance for all. For Toronto-based Roni X, growing up as a queer BIPOC individual came with its own set of challenges. Known for his powerful sound and uniquely creative take to his artistry, Roni X has learned to embrace his own definition of masculinity and is using his platform to encourage others to think outside the box and push the boundaries of what it means to be a man. Roni X takes a seat in the barber chair this month to tell us what pride means to him, how he has worked to overcome the challenges he's faced, and the incredible optimism he has moving forward. There's such a fine line when it comes to defining masculinity, especially in 2021. For so long, as a society, we've attributed masculinity with being manly, muscular, and not showing any signs of weakness. However, I've always felt that true masculinity is having confidence, elegance, and grace. Vulnerability plays a huge role in my masculinity. Although I do identify as a cisgender male, masculinity to me means that I can push socio-cultural ideologies and gender norms. As I've gotten older and have grown up in the queer community, I tend to look at things from a psychological standpoint. There is not one defining characteristic that expresses or defines my masculinity, and I plan on continuing to push the boundaries and abolishing the social constructs of toxic masculinity. Spiritually, I've always watched and connected to Ayanla, Fix My Life by Ayanla Van Zant. She has been such a pioneering leader, life coach, teacher, author, and overall such an inspirational black woman in the African-American community. The tools she provides while assisting predominantly black families and individuals dealing with generational traumas has been healing for me, but particularly 
knowing what healthy relationships look like, trying to communicate feelings effectively, knowing what my own triggers are, being able to forgive and ask for forgiveness, and lastly, giving myself permission as a queer black male to feel intense emotions like anger, rage, and sadness without being condemned or judged for expressing them. They're all, in fact, valid emotions that do not warrant the title of angry black person when expressed. Pride, to me, is all about living in your truth unapologetically, remembering those that have paved the way for us to be seen and heard, and inspiring the generations to come after us. My greatest strength is my softness. It's something my wife said to me a while ago, probably after crying at the theater during a moment when the rest of the audience was enjoying a terrific musical number. It's something that, throughout my life, has led me to seek out the person in the room who was hurting. It's a quality I've always used when helping others, but I've rarely used when trying to help myself. One year ago, I moved back to the United States after depression ate me up and threw my marriage into shambles. I developed addictions to whatever I could get my hands on and was trying desperately to fix myself by creating a new image for myself. I was effectively doing everything I could to avoid my problems by showing those around me that the problems were gone, when in fact they were only growing larger. This made me feel more and more lost, alone, and like the problems would always be there. I tried to take my own life, twice, trying to simply brush the slate clean with one simple act. It was after my second attempt that I knew big change needed to happen and that I needed a support network for the change to happen. I moved in with my brother, began exercising, created routine in a relatively stress-free environment, and slowly started to regain some joy in everyday life. And then I did something radical. At 32, I enlisted in the U.S. Army. I decided that I needed to really take myself out of the driver's seat and see what would happen. Hell, I really had tried everything else. The education, healthcare, physical, and mental stamina I would gain through the process seemed like just what I needed to start to rebuild confidence in myself as a person. Going in, I knew full well I was going to be overwhelmed by the next few years, and I was ready to start growing. What I didn't expect was that I would truly discover that my greatest strength, my softness, would be the one I utilized most in training. Sure, grit and toughness were important during basic combat and advanced individual training. As a combat medic, I knew my compassion would drive me to provide better care for my fellow soldiers, but I didn't expect to find that my softness and caring spirit would do so much in the time between exercises. On multiple occasions, I was the person a soldier would turn to to voice their inner pain, hurt, and fear about where their mental health might be failing, and ultimately, what that might drive them to do. And whether it was because I was considerably older, had gone to college, or generally acted like the old man in the barracks, these guys thought I would be the best person to talk to. That being said, I know that I'm pretty approachable, and I'm a caring person. Through my own experience, I know that when someone is suffering from depression, just being seen and understood and having the feelings and thoughts they're having be understood is a crucial step towards facing them. All too often, it seemed they had no one else to talk to. Why? Because they really didn't? Hell no. They meant that they were too embarrassed to talk to anyone about this, and that's what I want to change. 
Be soft so others can be strong. Too often, we aren't really listening. We aren't present with a person, yielding to their feelings and emotions, validating their thoughts and embracing their struggle. Instead, we quickly try to find a solution to their struggle so that we can continue caring about our own problems. We don't give space and recognition to their pain and allow them to just sit in it, feeling it fully so they can process it and eventually conquer it. We don't give that to each other very often and not enough. So please, I beg you, try the following with your friends, family, spouse, partner, or roommate. Number one, be patient. Number two, don't try and fix them because you can't and that's not what they're asking for. Instead, give them the space to feel safe and comfortable enough to open up and begin to process their hurt. Three, be kind to them and to yourself. Number four, remind them and yourself that whatever they're feeling is only temporary and that with time they will pass. Instead of being mad or disappointed, remember that we're all human and that we all make mistakes. Number five, be open and available. Number six, this one may be the hardest because it requires us to pause and give space to each other, to take time off the table and just allow a free space for emotion and feelings to take over. And it's not just for someone else, but for ourselves too. Give yourself the time and space you need to start to unpack some of your feelings so you can begin to heal. There isn't anything we can do for someone who is gone. We can't take back what we've said or didn't say. So start now to help others and yourself to relieve some pressure, to learn to laugh about the pain, and to begin to heal through time. It doesn't happen all at once, but each day we can have small victories that build to a larger picture where gratitude replaces despondence and we're excited to grow and thrive in this thing we call life. I'm going to leave it there, everybody. Please give to my Movember fundraiser if you can. Any amount is appreciated. PeggingParadise.com is where you can find my blogs, podcasts, and my erotica. Pegging 101 offers informational pegging articles only with no kink. And what else? Um, I'm just going to go to send your questions to Ruby at PeggingParadise.com. No question is too exciting too extraordinary or too exceptional my listeners are going to learn along with you so please don't hesitate throw those questions in my mailbox or record your question on the voice app of your phone and send it to me thank you all so much for downloading listening you rock happy pegging and no shame